Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, our guest is Neil Lancaster. He's an actual ex-cop. He used to work in the Met. And then he gave it all up. He moved to Scotland and now here he writes what he knows. He tells crime thriller stories. He's published two Tom Novak books. Uh, The new one is called Going Rogue. Uh, We talk about the process of turning police experiences into story. How authentic he thinks writing about the force really needs to be. Also, we learn about the hill uh, that he's willing to die on in terms of how police stories are actually told. Uh, We chat about how much he plots and why he's perfectly fine, absolutely cracking out the words every day. Uh, And we talk about how much he worries at the start about how it's reading. You know, I don't overthink it. I really don't overthink it. I haven't really got loads of tricks that I use. I just put the words on the page that I think work, and I hope for the best. It really isn't any more complex than that. It's all on the way with Neil Lancaster in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. Thanks for listening. This is Writer's Routine. It's the show where we take a look inside the working day of a successful writer. We find out how they do it, how they plan, how they plot, how they hopefully publish. And we try and steal some of their scheduling secrets for ourselves. Now, I found recently that the idea of schedules and routines and consistency is so helpful. I've been thinking, I've been feeling almost guilty for the last few weeks that I'm not using this time to be really productive with, to get the writing down, and I find found it so hard. You, you know, what's going on, like thinking about what's going on takes so much of my brain power that there's almost none left to actually tell the stories that I want to tell. But I've really found um, that, that, that getting into planning and schedules and routines every day is, is helping me out so much. I know, that's ridiculous. I've done a writing routine podcast for like two years, but only just just coming to terms with it myself. It's helping out with the uncertainty over everything else. Are you finding that as well? I hope this episode helps you out with that. This week, our guest is Neil Lancaster. He's worked in the Met Police. He used to work in the Met Police for 25 years as a detective. Uh, He was in the army before that, so he knows about routine. And he also really knows about what happens inside these things, how it actually is. And then when it was time to retire, he gave it up. He moved to Scotland. By the way, as it turns out, a load of authors do. There's like a a Riviera for writers up there. Uh, And he wrote the story that he'd always wanted to tell. We talk about how he distilled all of that police knowledge into stories and how he made them thrillers. Because I guess it's good having the knowledge and the story, isn't it? But if you can't write it down, if you can't make these things, these procedures readable, kind of what's the point? Uh, Also, we talk about how he got published and how advice of author friends helped him out with that and why a huge turning point in his writing career uh, hinged on when he put his star, Tom Novak, onto a diet. Seriously. You can learn all about that in a little bit. Uh, Let's start off, as we always do, though, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Well, I live in a very remote part of the Highlands of Scotland on a place called the Black Isle. Um coincidentally actually quite close to someone else you've had on one of these podcasts Ian Rankin he's got a place literally just down the road at, at Cromarty um, that's his escape that's, that's his where little, he goes that's his yeah. Pierre d'Arter yes. where he goes goes to write without any distractions um, so I live in a 10 miles away or so from him and I live at the top of the hill on the edge of a forest um, so I have I've just created myself a little office 
which I've never had before. And it is in a big porch. I've got a big porch at the front of the house. And um, I've moved my desk into there because it used to be my son's playroom. So I've moved all this stuff out of there. And I've moved a desk into there. And um, I sit and write in there. And it, it's great because the view is absolutely amazing from there. Possibly slightly too good because it is a bit distracting. Um, I did tweet a picture of it. I think you might have even liked actually, but um, somebody said, "Have you got any any more distractions that you could possibly have?" Because of course, my son's got his drum kit in there as well. There's a guitar in there, and there's my binoculars where I sit. And oh, look, there's a buzzard! Or, oh, crikey, look at that red kite! And there's oh, there's a red deer running across. So yeah, it's a great place to write, um, but it's not. It can be a bit distracting. I think. It sounds idyllic. It sounds like every writer's dream. But why? Why did you escape? Because obviously you worked in the Met in London for many, many years at, at the hard edge of uh, police work in London. Why escape uh, to Scotland and write? Uh, we'd been going there for a long time. My wife and uh, my son and I. Had, we'd been going up there for a long time because we just fought, fell in love with the area. We've got some family up there, and it is a little place. It's really magical. The Black Isle. It's not an island. It's actually a peninsula. Um, but it's it's incredibly quiet and peaceful, and yet we're only 15 minutes from Inverness, where we've got everything you could need. I'm only half an hour from the airport, so it, it ticked all the boxes. So I'd been in the Met for 25 years, and because I'd done military time as well, I'd been in the military police for six years before that. Um, my retirement date was coming up, and then there was a decision, do I stay or do I go? And... I had a, a little flirtation with with ill health in that I got I got ill in 2013, which I've recovered from completely. Um, but it made me sit and reassess and think, you know what, you know, life is for right here, right now. So this is my dream. So let's do it. And so we just did it. We sold the house. I was living in St Albans. We sold this house in St Albans. Bought a house in on the Black Isle, and I've never regretted it. I love it up there. This is so far removed from the writing questions that I'd like to ask you, but sure. I've I've never really spoken to someone who has made such a drastic upheaval. What do you do? So day one, I imagine, when you move to the Black Isle, and maybe you know a few people there because you've been holidaying. Day one, you're unpacking. What do you do day two? I say we are fortunate. I have got some... My, my nephew and his family live there. We're, we're, we're close to, and people have been really, really friendly. We've made loads of friends up there, you know, very, very quickly. But there was so much to see and do. There was so much to explore. I'm 10 minutes away from amazing beaches. Um, we've got um, Shannonry Point, which has got the biggest dolphin pod in the area. So you can go down and see dolphins every day. I'm 40 minutes away from the Cairngorms. Um, I've got hundreds of acres for forestry right behind my house. So just exploring the area um, without even thinking about work or what I'm going to do next. I didn't have a plan. I had no plan. The plan was to stop being a policeman, and that was as far as it went. How long were you along the path when you decided, I'll give that idea that's knocking around in my head a go? Probably about a year in retrospect, maybe slightly longer, maybe a couple of years. Um, I'd been doing some private work, some private investigative work, which is not interesting. It's not It's not Magnum PI. It sounds the most interesting thing. It really thing. isn't. It's not Magnum PI. It's mostly traffic accidents you know okay. and I didn't do that when I was in the in police because I was a detective but anyway yeah I do a bit of that and it wasn't interesting me but I was reading a lot I mean I've always read voraciously all my life ever since my mum forced me to as a, as a kid and um would you read crime sorry I was a bit like a busman's holiday no no I would read crime I crime and thrillers and I sort of more towards thrillers so you know like everybody I've loved uh, Lee Child, David Baldacci, um, Tony Parsons, all the, Simon Koenig, all those sort of fast-paced, high-octane thrillers are what I loved. And even then, I sort of, I, I thought, you know, I, I, maybe I could do this. And it, it sort of stuck in my head. The one thing a teacher said to me when I was 12, I did rubbish at school. I went to a terrible school in Kent, and I did absolutely useless. Came out with basically no qualifications which is probably why I ended up in the police, but um, yeah, that's another story. Um, but one teacher, when I was about 11 or 12 or something, I had to write up to some creative writing, and I'd been reading thrillers as a 12-year-old. That's how slightly weird I was. I was reading old-school thrillers like Alistair MacLean, Desmond Bagley, um, Dick Francis, Len Dayton, all those old schools, and I loved them. I thought they were brilliant. And this teacher said, he read some creative writing I did, and he said, 
you can write you've got talent you need to harness this Neil you know get on with don't lose this don't lose this so of course I did I just (laughs) I was too keen to try and be a cool kid which I never ever was Um, and then I got sucked into the life of joining the military having family and then the police and I never had time and then I thought do you know what maybe maybe I'll give this a go and I literally just opened my laptop one day with no more thought than that and again no real firm plan do you think we'll come to this later because I still got a lot to ask you about your room and your day do you think everything that you had seen everything you had done while you were working in the military and in the police it's it's always percolating there it's always feeding you these threads of a story which could come together at some point yeah yeah absolutely because you know anything I've written isn't a a direct lift of anything I've done but all of the things I've done over the years inform what I now write. Um, and it can go wider than that. My middle son, who's in, who's 30, um, is a Royal Marine. so And he's had stories to tell me from Afghanistan and Iraq. So that stuck in with me as well. So I've, I've taken influence from my career from and from other things I see around me and other people I've spoken to, from my son. So yeah, it all informs it. And... I hope makes it easy for me to make it feel real, which is what I'm aiming for. There's nothing in there really. I there's no pin board, there's no whiteboard, there's no cork board. There's I I rarely put ink on paper. Um, really, I've just got my laptop. I I, so I have a, an old legal pad that I use. I might write a mind map on it when I start sketching things out, but I never look at it again. It. it I just trust my memory to, to take me there, which is strange to think as an ex-police officer used to recording everything I did. Long reports that it, that would be how I would work, but I could, couldn't be further from the truth. What about your research? Is that fairly diligent because you are an, an, an ex-copper or there's no need to research because it is all there? With the, the nature of my protagonist being what he is, I mean, he's a, an undercover cop, he's a surveillance cop, he's ex-military. I, a lot of that I have and it's just in me. I don't need to research it. Obviously, I do need to research for specific things like specific firearms or the most recent book, which I'm just delivering to my publisher now. Um, I had to heavily research drones and um, electromagnetic pulse to be used as a weapon. Um, so that takes a bit of research. Um, but no, your, your day-to-day things, to make a cop feel like a cop and make him feel real to me, I don't have to research that, which is you know makes it easy. Let me take you to the day then. The show is writer's routine, Neil. Uh, you know all about this, so so talk me through yours. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are writing, how does it look? On a normal day, it can vary depending on whether my wife is working or not. My wife's a social worker, works part-time. Um, so if she's working, we get up the same sort of time, seven-ish, and get the little boy, my little son, Ollie, who's nine, and get him ready, get his packed lunch, all the usual stuff that everybody else does, and get him out the door on, onto the school bus, I then got a dog, my little constant companion, Peggy, um, who I tweet about all the time <laughs> and who have actually written into the book on a cu- in a couple of the books. She's actually got a cameo just because it struck me as a funny Because she's thing always there. Because yeah. she's always there. And I do see her and then I think, oh, yeah, okay. So I have that. I've got Peggy in the books now, which is cool. So I then got to walk Peggy. So we're out walking from the house into the forest and I'll be up there for about an hour. And then I come back and then there's always the usual faffing to do. Uh, you know procrastinating that we all do and finding things interesting that you don't normally find interesting and um, then probably the reality is about 11 o'clock half 10 11 I'll open the laptop what happens then I literally I hopefully have some ideas left over from the previous day Um, I do have a thing that I like to know what my next three chapters are even if it is only a rough outline in my head it's not written down it's in my head the next three chapters, right, the next one, this is going to happen. And then after that, I'll lead to that. And then that'll lead to that. And then I hope as I keep going, those next three chapters will continue to be sketched out mentally. Um, and, and that's how I work. I will write that chapter. I'll write the next chapter. And I'll think, right, OK, now that's sorted. And I think, right, what am I? Yeah, OK, I know where I'm going. And then I move into the next one. And then I will just work through. I'll have a bite to eat at lunchtime, but literally stop. And then after, I start again straight away. And then I get my best probably two hours after lunch where I can achieve more in those two hours than I can any other time. Why do you think that is? Is it as simple as food? It, it, could, be, it could be that. It's just then I've, I've had the hour of 
probably sitting at the laptop staring, being distracted by Twitter or Facebook and bits of research. And then I think, right, okay, now I know what I'm going to write. And then I'll write hard for two hours. Um, Literally furiously, I can write thousands of words in two hours. I could could easily get 3,000 words down in two hours. Um, Are you judging the quality of those words? Well, what I do is like many people do who I've, I I go back the next day I'll go back and I'll have a look at what I've written and it, I will not a detailed forensic dissection of what I've written but just a look and think okay yeah that works and I'll correct anything obvious and, and it, it's fairly well formed so I'm quite happy once I've finished that sort of bit of the review I'm generally quite happy with what I've written that day and and then I move on and start again and again but I tend to be writing furiously and fast so your two hours of furious and fast writing brings you to, I imagine, around three o'clock? Yeah, and again, it depends on whether I've got to pick my son up um, to take him to, whether it's guitar lessons or swimming lessons. I can't believe how middle class I sound. <laughs> I grew up on a council estate in Kent. Um, but yeah, whether I've got to go and pick up Ollie to go and take him to a, an after-school club, then I'll have to finish a bit earlier, say about quarter to three. Failing that, it's just after uh, three o'clock and... If I really have a burning urge, I need to get some other words down. I'll um, let Ollie play on his Xbox for a bit and I'll um, crack on another half an hour. And then my wife tends to be home by five. I don't tend to write in the evenings. So how has your writing routine changed? I know it probably hasn't changed through analysis, although maybe recently where you are listening to so many different ways of working. But three books in, how has the way that you write changed? Have you felt yourself getting better in any way? Have, Have you deliberately tweaked little things here and there for instance the two hours after lunch yeah i i think it's about expectation level now um i i don't expect that i can always achieve what i want to achieve there will be days i can't write and i don't beat myself up about it i'm lucky i'm not writing to deadlines although i wonder if that is lucky or not maybe i'd be well i would write a little bit better with a deadline because i am sort of inherently quite lazy um so yeah i i've I expect less of myself in terms of I, th- I know I'll get there. That's the thing. I'm now I'm at the stage with my third book, and certainly the last half of the third book came really easily, and I really enjoyed writing it. So I'm f- starting to relax that I'm trusting that I can do this now. Um, I still don't know what's in the next chapter. In reality, I, I'm, I am still flying by the seat of my pants. But then listening to all these podcasts and talking to other writers. Loads and loads of writers haven't got a clue what they're going to write. I mean, Ian Rankin was saying he, he doesn't even want to know who's done it yeah. until right at the end. And that made me think, well, actually, that's all right. It's all right not to plot. I don't have to plot. You have to start with your protagonist. You've got to start with the character. I think I wanted it to be a character-driven, you know, less plot-driven, more about the character. So I thought it's got to be interesting. Um, and I thought, I want to tell a story about a, a refugee so there's so all the negativity we have, we have around refugees, around immigrants. We hear some of the vernacular that's used by politicians, just, you know, describing swarms. I thought this is terrible because most refugees come here and they just want to live a life. They want to do good. And I had met somebody in the past who had been who was a refugee from Bosnia, and he'd gone on to do some t- tremendous things. And he was we were chatting away, and he was saying. I'm so grateful to this country for giving me the life I've got. Whereas, you know, I look at what my life could have been and I thought, well, that's a story to tell. And then talking to my son, who's a Marine, um, and he was talking about people from other countries who'd come to join the Marines and who were just part of this, just getting along. You don't hear about them, they're just doing the work. And I thought, let's make him a refugee from Bosnia. Of course, the Bosnia conflict, it's recent memory. Um, And I thought, let's have him escape in the siege of Sarajevo. Let's make him an orphan. And let's make him brought up by foster family. That was my start point. Because I thought it was a really interesting backstory. And then I wanted him to, you know, uh, he joined the Royal Marines. Again, that's again just to save myself research. Because I, <laughs> I can just phone my son up and say, what about this? Is this, this plausible? And uh, then I thought, well, let's make him a cop. And because of the nature of my experience and what I've done in the police, I worked extensively in covert policing, um, surveillance, um, the sort of jobs you can't too much talk about but I the majority of my expertise was in that um, I also was involved in the prosecution of 
corrupt solicitors towards the end of my service when I was working seconded to the Home Office Immigration. Now, that was actually a major influence to the first book, Going Dark, which actually the initiating incident for that is an undercover deployment that, that Tom Novak does to a corrupt solicitor's office. That's heavily influenced by a real case, which I prosecuted um, back in uh, 2013, I think it came to fruition. So, you know, I had all these stories in my head that helped me form the character. I wanted to tell a story about, a, a positive story about someone, a, a refugee, um, I wanted to tell a, a, a positive story about someone really contributing to the UK and putting themselves in harm's way for the UK and being grateful. And he is, he's grateful. He says he's, he loves in the, the UK. He's grateful to the UK. So I just wanted to tell that different narrative. So it started with the character and then I obviously then drew in experiences I'd had in the Met Police to help build the story. But it was an organic process it, it didn't come in a flash of inspiration let's try and talk about the, or, that organic process then because you, you you've got your, your character which is the basis this is how you want to start things happening you've got these experiences that are helping you along the way but it needs a thread it needs a, a, a way it's going to get from a to b how are you sitting there and, and finding out what tom is going to do through the crux of 400 odd pages well it, i mean it started off the he was he was working in his day job as a police officer, but he's got this under undercover speciality that he he can call on, and he's recruited to do this job to infiltrate this um, Bosnian people trafficking gang that lead him into this corrupt solicitor's office. Again, this is entirely reflected in a real life case. Um, well, I've just you know I've changed obviously lots of details, and the the antagonist is different, but you know it, it's fundamentally uh, the, the product of a couple of cases. So I wanted to do that, and then I thought well. What happens then if he's completely sold out? His cover is completely blown. Not only is it blown out by the bad guys, by the Bosnian mafia, by the corrupt solicitor, but there are some bad guys in the police as well who have found themselves being corrupted. He's now got to go off the radar. He's now, because he can't try, he can't come openly out. He can't go to his superiors and say, help, I'm being this, because he doesn't know who he can trust. So he has to go underground. He has to, to, to coin the title of the first book, go dark. So he goes dark. Um, but then I thought, well, OK, he was a Marine. Again, this is all happening as I'm writing. So he was a Marine. He was in Basra. Now, my son was in Basra, so I managed to speak to him about this. And um, he's part of a surveillance regiment in Basra. And he ends up rescuing uh, a CIA agent who he they're assisting in a particular meet. And this CIA agent who later becomes incredibly senior in the CIA, says, look, you, I owe you the biggest favour a man can ever owe, so you please call me if you ever need any help. And this is Tom needing help, reaches out to this CIA agent. And then it's about, it's the journey. There's, there's no who done it in this. We know pretty much who done it. There's a bit of a reveal with who the corrupt people are, but we know there's corrupt cops. It, it's more influenced around a... a why they've done it, story, and a race against time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Before we get back into it with Neil Lancaster this week, I want to say a massive thank you uh, to everyone who has pledged on the Patreon recently. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I, was, I was worried about how the, the crisis would affect it. People are quite rightly uh, thinking through a lot of the things they're spending their money on at the moment because they don't know when more money's going to come in a lot of the time. So I thought, well, uh, a little rinky-dink writing podcast <laughs> might not be top of most people's lists. But uh, it's just made people even even kinder, even more generous. Thank you so much if you've supported the show in the last few weeks. If you would like to do that, if you would like to pledge anything, if you've learned anything in the last hundred or so episodes that have that have helped the way that you write, changed the way that you plan your day and tell your stories, uh, you can do that over on our Patreon page. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You get small gifts of thanks from us too, just little bits of merch uh, so you're part of the club. It doesn't have to be much seriously. Anything like a dollar or so a month really helps out. Uh, you can do it. I would love you to over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then with Neil Lancaster talking about the brand new Tom Novak thriller, uh, Going Rogue. I think there's a little bit of, of mic or radio buzzing going on in the background of the chat. So just, just power through with that because Neil has got some amazing tips and tricks and advice of how to tell stories. In this part, we talk about what changed between the draft that was rejected and then the draft that was finally published and how he got advice from, from trusted authors uh, to help out with that. Also, we chat about how perfect his words need to be and how much he wastes them now. Do you remember we spoke to Lucy Foley a few weeks ago on the show, who was really happy to waste words. She would write thousands of words that she knew would never be in the final uh, draft, but she needed that time to to find out about her character. Uh, We talked to Neil about whether he needs the same thing, and we get back into it talking about the plotting. How much does he know about the story before he sits down to tell it? People always say, oh, I like to know the beginning and I like to know the end. I don't, the only end I know is that we're going to win. The good guys are going to win. Now, because, you know, everybody wants to read a story where the good guys are going to prevail. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be close shaves. But really, I mean, I've just started another project. I've got a great start, a great hook. I'm really excited by it. Not, I, I don't really know how it's going to end. I haven't got a clue. I'm going to work that out as I go along. So I just... I get closer to it. It's like one of those things. It's like going through a tunnel where I'm starting a, and I'm chasing a train and I know eventually I'll catch the train. Uh, that's a wonderful analogy, actually. I quite like that. It's like I'm, I'm chasing this. I know I will catch up with where I want to be. But up until now, say three books in and I've started a fourth book, um, I still don't know where I am until... or where How the story's going to end. I know we're probably going to win until probably three quarters of the way through the book how happy are you with that though for you've just started your fourth how happy are you with this very uh, casual attitude to figuring out how you're going to get there I, i've got a number I, if i don't know how it's going to end the reader doesn't know how it's going to end that's one of my points but it really i think it's just the only way i can write i i tried to plot i've tried I looked at what some, some people have said they do and how they write an outline or these big mind maps or the post-it notes all over. It just doesn't work for me. And I stopped beating myself up about it once I heard the likes of Ian Rankin and, and I, uh, Denzel Myrick, who I'm friendly with, and, and they say, I've got a rough idea, but really, I just let the story form. So I'm getting better with it. I'm getting more relaxed in it and I'm trusting in the fact that I'll get there now and hope for the best what happens if the best doesn't happen though what happens if you are sat there days on end and the words just aren't coming it hasn't happened yet <laughs> and that's all i can say uh, then i'll have to maybe i'll have to re-examine what i do at the moment the story i get more ideas the closer i get to the end the idea i have to prune ideas back and no, i can't do that that'll get too complicated but um I just, I just am learning to trust the process and that, the, that these ideas will come. Um, I can't really do much. I can't say much more about it than that. So far, I just have to keep trust, trust myself. 
I try not to waste words anymore. Um, I did cut 6,000 words out of a book, out of the last book, which has been published, Going Rogue. I cut a complete scene out of that. Not because I didn't like the scene. I actually really liked the scene. In fact, I turned it into a short story um, that I've just given away. But um, as a general rule, I tend to be happy as I'm going. I, I tend to try and write short and sharp and keep it really clean and to the point. Um, I certainly don't write prose. I, that's not within my skill set. Um, there are many better writers than me that can do it an awful lot better than me. And I think anybody who buys my books probably not looking for that. <laughs> There's a skill in that though, isn't it? There's a skill in knowing what, what you... What you, what you are good at. It, it's something that I'm learning. I, I say this is all a learning process. But, I, you know, I don't overthink it. I really don't overthink it. I haven't really got loads of tricks that I use. I just put the words on the page that I think work and I hope for the best. It really isn't any more complex than that. When you've sat and done your first book, Going Dark... Um, and you, you probably, I would imagine, first books are always the case. You're telling quite a lot of the stories that have happened to you in your years in the Met. That publishes. You're probably on a two-book deal. You've got to write the second book. How on earth do you start that one? In this, the way you work, where you don't necessarily know the overall thread. Um, how do you start that train on the track again? Um, again, the same one. Obviously, I was going to use the same characters. So I had some fully formed characters that I was really pleased with that I wanted to get into the story. So they are where it starts. Um, I had an idea at the end of, of the first book that we were going to take Tom out of day-to-day policing and put him into a, a more specialised covert unit that I thought, you know, I could tell some quite sexy stories with. So that was the sort of the start point. Right, OK, so we've got this sort of deniable squad um, of expert surveillance operatives, undercover officers, firearms officers, that sort of thing. So I thought, that's quite a nice little trope. I quite like that. I then thought, right, OK, let's think of a theme. And it literally is, what's my theme? And I thought, right, what's current? Far-right terrorism. I want to tackle that. Loads of books out there at the moment on Islamic terrorism. I thought, great, you know, great to tell those stories. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't need to do that. I think I wanted to write a far-right terrorism-based story. I always want also, because again, looking at what's going on in the world at the moment with Brexit and things like that, I wanted to look at disaster or touch on disaster capitalism because I thought that's a really interesting theme. The fact that we are, are we being played with a lot of these big political decisions that are going on at the moment? Are very, very rich men jumping on board these major political shifts influencing them through you know through facebook advertising you know uh, all these bots and all this sort of thing are we being played by these people are they doing this to feather their own nest will they could they harness far-right extremism to profit themselves and i thought yeah i bet they could but even if they don't it's a great idea so that's where i started i thought i just start with this idea i want to write about far-right terrorism and i really like the idea that are we all being played? Are the these far-right, ex-military, football hooligan-type, um, EDL-type scumbags being played by these enormously rich oligarchs, businessmen, who are seeking to profit by causing turmoil? So that's it. That's the idea. And then I just think, OK, let's start off with my first scene. The first scene is a terror attack on a mosque. And from there, I just, again, progress through it. And then I think, well, obviously they're going to bring in Tom and his unit to help disrupt this and then play it through then. And then the journey starts with me chasing the train. How organic is that second process? If the first one is extremely organic that you're sitting there and just letting this happen, I know you're still not in any rush to catch up with the train before you hit your 90 or thousand word mark. But is there, and you're clearly a very... um, uh, academical is the wrong word, but you analyse these things. You listen to writing podcasts, you chat to other writers about mm. how they do these things. How organic, when you've got the bite, when you like writing, how organic is that difficult second book? Again, getting going is hard. Getting beyond the, fir- getting beyond the first third of the book is hard. and Because, again, you're still forming your antagonists and your bad guys and you're trying to make them suitably unpleasant. And But these are, they just, I just trust that the ideas will come to me. And so far they have. 
so you know but the first third is a struggle and I don't enjoy it and it's like swimming through treacle you know that's when having a plot probably would benefit me where I could say right okay I know these first 20 chapters I know what I'm going to write but I still I always think the good ideas will survive you know I don't write ideas down I haven't got a, a, a notebook with me ever I haven't got one with me now I don't think so but then I sort of think, well, the good ideas will survive. The best ones will survive. So I <laughs> just sort of trust these these things I do. How worried are you about maybe cliche? Because this genre is quite rife with cliche. It's rife with the same ideas and tropes cropping up over and over yeah. and over again. How conscious are you of going away from it, of be, of not being the classic ex-cop with a gritty story to tell? It, it is a hard one because, you know, the, the experiences I have are within me and it's going to be hard to stop me writing them um i'm i'm not writing whodunits i'm not writing detect traditional de- detective stories they they are closer to lee child or greg hurwitz than uh, they are to ian rankin or you know um, denzel myrick um i don't know really is the answer to the question i i just write the best story i can and try to avoid some of the tropes not that I know what all of them are really there's so much I don't know about the process of writing the actual academic process of writing a book when everyone I've heard on here talking about oh well I tend to steer away from the three-act structure I'm thinking I don't even really know what that is I do just... you have a desire to know what that is or if it's working well, for you it's working for you not really I don't you know what I don't really mind I don't... would I be a better writer if I'd gone and done a creative writing course Maybe my first book would have been easier to... Maybe it would have got read, would have been a bit better. But would it? I don't know. Um, I, you know, people seem to like it. And I, I think I just... I think I've learned on the job. I view it as an... I view my first book as an apprenticeship, um, which I worked long and hard on. It took me ages because I kept going back over it. And I actually got the help of an editor, a lovely lady called Emma Mitchell, um, and she worked with me on it. Just And I viewed that as like, well, this is maybe like me doing a, a creative writing course. And I just trusted that I'd get there. So you're writing that first book, if you're getting an editor in, you're writing it with a view to it being published. Many people will just be writing it happy just to get this story out there. But you're trying to make it the best version of this story that it can be. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to tell a really good story. I knew, I knew the story was good. I knew the character was really good. I'm really proud of the character. And... And some of the ancillary characters that are in there as well, you know, for those who may have read it, you've got Pet, the German-American computer expert, you've got Buster, his sidekick. Um, I'm really proud of them. And I thought, oh, this story does deserve to get out there. But I sort of started thinking, maybe I'll self-publish this. But then when it, I looked into the self-publishing, I looked into it extensively, and I came to the conclusion I couldn't be bothered. Really. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not the, you know, uploading it onto Kindle. I mean, there are some tremendous self-publishers out there. You think about Louise Ross, uh, Mark Dawson, uh, Rebecca Bradley, all doing terrific books and professionally publishing them. You know, you can't tell that they're not professionally pro- produced by, you know, a, a traditional publisher. Um, so I really wanted to get a publisher. So, yeah, I, I got editorial help to help me in my, my learning process. And it was invaluable, absolutely invaluable. I think I wrote 110,000 words when it started, when I had my first draft of it, and I finished it, and I thought, wow, I've written a book. How excited am I? And I didn't research it, and I whizzed it off to agents all over the place. And I either got ignored or I got no thank yous. Quite rightly so, because it, it wasn't ready. The book was, it, you know, it was, it was too wordy. The pace wasn't right. Um, you know, my my POVs were, were slipping. I, I spoke to a, a writer, uh, a lady called Margaret Kirk, who lives very close to me. On um, She lives in Inverness. I met up with her for a coffee and she said, well, let me have a look at it. And so I showed it to her. She's just about to release her third traditionally published book. And she was very open. And she said, look, it's a good story, but there's not enough pace. You're using too much word. You, you know, she gave me loads of pointers, and I went back and revisited it. And I worked then with Emma, the editor, and then I gave it to another friend who's a writer, a guy called Mike Walters, who lives on, literally very close to me. He's written about fifteen books. What is it about this place in Scotland? Where no, I don't know. Every, what's, what's going on? I have no idea. There's, there's something in the in something in the water. I think. 
Um, and I, I gave it to Mike and he said, this is a cracking book. I really like this. You've got to get this out there. So I started again, but I submitted this time to independent publishers because I just wanted this book out there. So and I submitted it around this time and I got a number of offers um, of publication by independent publishers. And um, I plumped for my current publisher and we're on a, a bit of a journey together with it. How easy was it for you to be not just to be told this thing that you've worked on for a long time that you've ploughed 110,000 words into. So how, how easy is it to be told that it's not good enough, but also to be told that it's also to actually have to change the things like I wouldn't, where, where do you start in going back into a massive, massive piece of work and thinking, well, I've, a lot of this, I've got a tweak. It, I mean, when, when it was pointed out to me and I, I trusted Margaret and Emma to tell me the truth and I knew they knew better than me. It's as simple as that. They, you know, Margaret's much cleverer than me. Mm. Um, and I, I trusted that they knew what they were talking about. And I looked at it with, with honesty and I thought, I've just written so much padding. There's so much padding in there. How many times does my man need to eat in a day? You know, little things like that. I thought, he's had four meals today. Why do I need to write about that? So I managed to cut it down to, I managed to take about 15,000 words off it just by reappraising it. And then like putting him on a diet. Yeah, like, basically. Yeah. And and having that mantra of what I've just written, does it advance the story? If it doesn't get rid of it. Now I've not forgotten those lessons, which is why my books are much leaner now and I've I've learnt what I can leave out. But I had to learn it by making the mistake rather than perhaps doing it in a creative writing class where someone might have given me that feedback straight away. Mentioned how you are a almost a student of the game now. You've become one in your own way, or you're a self taught student of the game. If you learn after that first round, sending it to agents, that your stories do need to be leaner, how do you think you still do need to develop? Yeah, I need to. I need to keep working at it. I need. I need to perhaps. I mean, the pacing I'm happy with. My dialogue could be better. There's no getting away from that. You can always improve on things. And it, I it, there was a definite shift between book one and book two. I wanted there to be because when I thought. One thing you notice for me as a as an ex police officer that really gripes me when I watch crime on TV, you know, crime programs on TV or read crime books, it is less about the procedures because you know what, you can't be accurate on the procedures. Nobody would want to read your book; it'd be boring. Um, but it is the interaction between cops. Now, the one thing you know, cops who work together all the time are brutally awful to each other, but in a very friendly, happy. You know, just Mickey taking constantly, relentlessly. And I thought that's something I need to bring into this book because that is really what happens. And that's to me how a, how a, a, a book feels real. Anything to do with police that makes it feel real. Because it's not as formal as you see on a lot of the TV programmes. It's quite an informal environment. So, I again, I really am working hard now to develop my ability to write punchy, fast-paced dialogue that, you know, that, that makes people laugh or you know makes people want to keep turning the pages because the dialogue is as it is in real life which is it's a relentlessly piss-takey environment the police and uh, you know it's good to tell these stories and make them as accurate as you can aside from getting the dialogue right how easy was it for you to lift the curtain authentically into police life because there are so many police policemen out there um but not all of them are able to write about it convincingly. Uh, apart from what your teacher told you, that you've got a knack for writing. How how did you find shedding a light on these things that people think they know what happens, but probably don't have a clue? You you have to give people a flavour, enough for them to think, crikey, this bloke knows what he's talking about, um, without swamping them in procedures, techniques, tactics. Um, because then that's she's just showing off. But what you have to do is give enough for them to think, crikey, yeah, this sounds really realistic. So when I'm talking about surveillance, you know, I can drop enough info, little nuggets of information in there about the tactics, techniques, without giving anything away that I shouldn't be giving away, but enough for people to think, crikey, this, this is what it's really like. Or, you know, talk, so when you're in a police station... When you're going through a custody procedure, um, when you're talking about planning a job, whether, you know, firearms job or something like that, I want to give enough that the reader thinks, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. 
without switching them off, which you would. If you talked about police procedures, you know, everyone, no one would finish a police book <laughs> if it was like what they're actually like. Um, I know that quite a lot of people who are, who are close into something as being a policeman, uh, they get quite attached to how authentic things are. How up for you, aside from dropping in grains of the truth, how much dramatic license do you take to some of these things? No, or is it almost loads, loads you loads. say? Absolutely, because it's a story, it's fiction, it's supposed to be taking people to a different world. Now, I, I don't I don't class my books as police procedurals. I class them as thrillers, action thrillers is what I want to write. Um, but I want them to feel real, and I want people to think this is what it probably is like. But, no, nah, they've got to be plausible. They don't need to be necessarily hugely accurate. If they're huge, you just can't tell. You can't tell a murder investigation accurately. You know what? Where's the fun in talking about re- reviewing six hundred hours of CCTV or house to house inquiries? You know that's the reality of it. Um, you know, I, 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 the things I do do is I won't have a chief superintendent running around on the streets because that doesn't happen. You know, chief superintendents won't leave a nick. You know, DCIs won't leave it. DIs generally don't leave the nick. The work's all done by the DCs and the DSs. You know, the DIs are there for strategic overview, etc. Um, so uh, little things like that. The little things that you see where... I mean, most protagonists in crime fiction, they're DIs, DCIs, aren't they? I made Tom a DS because I wanted it... To me, it wouldn't feel right. I'm not going to write about a DCI going around kicking indoors. It doesn't happen, you know? Um, so other things like that I'll always get right so if it's a firearms job so I wouldn't have the DCI running in ahead of a load of firearms officers because why would I write that it's never going to happen you know so I need things to be plausible I will make them as accurate as I can if it doesn't detract from the story or make it boring aside from the official rank of someone who's doing a lot of the legwork, aside from the way that cops are talking to each other, what is the one big hill that you are willing to die on that all that m- the majority of police novels and f- TV shows and films get wrong? Is there something that y- you're watching Line of Duty or something and uh-huh. and everything's like, oh, this is, what, what's that? What is that big hill that you are willing to that, that you, you will go to your death and you will change this? Well, I wouldn't have it. Firearms jobs are one. I will never... A firearms job is put together. I mean, the the tactical firearms commander runs that job. And the whole point is keeping people who don't have guns out of the way until everything's safe. I would never write an unarmed man walking in in amongst all the firearms officers. Why would we do that? The whole point is that, you know, you're there to be kept safe. So I wouldn't that. Surveillance where you've got a couple of middle-aged cops with kebabs all over the place sat right outside someone's (laughs) house with a long lens camera that drives me up the wall because there's no need for it and some of the little things that you know upsets people and it'll upset people in the police is where a a uniform officer will call a detective sir even though he's only a detective constable or something because being a detective is not a promotion it's you know it's just a different job so there's a number of things. I could go on forever. <laughs> okay. And I, I'd sound really boring, but, you know, I, I can forgive most things. I just think it's nice for it to feel real. It's nice to try and get the dialogue how it is. You know, it's not a for, as formal an environment. You know, I've never once stood to attention in someone's office while in 25 years policing. I remember seeing on one programme once they some very senior officer walked into a police station and all the police officers like stamped to attention like they're at Buckingham Palace and he walked in and goes, as you were. And I thought, what? No one has ever said that in the history of the police. Have you never thought about becoming a little consultant on these things? Um, I have done some bits and bobs of that for one or two authors. I have, um, I did, I've actually recently just finished, um, I know he won't mind me, saying because he said it openly himself mark dawson i read his most recent work and i've offered him a fair bit of advice on that Um, it's so funny isn't it you say that uh, you're happy to have dramatic license with quite a lot but it's just these little niggly things that no one like 90 percent of your readership probably wouldn't notice at all but it's just for you just needs to be right Uh, i guess lastly so you know, you've just started. You're thinking of starting your fourth Tom, but you, with all your 25 plus whatever it is years in the in the force, 
how many more little stories do you have knocking around that, or, that are authentic where you don't need to rely on that much imagination for Tom to get involved in? I could keep writing Novaks as long as it takes. Um, you do get to that point, don't you? Um, how much trouble can one man get into? <laughs> but let's face it, Lee Charles managed with Jack Reacher. I mean, Jack Reacher keeps getting in bother and we all want to still keep reading him. Um, so I could keep writing Novaks. Um, I have started a, a completely different book at the moment, which I'm playing around with at the moment, a completely different protagonist in a, a, a Scottish-based thriller that I'm thinking of. I've written about 7,000 words and I'm just playing around with that at the moment. I've also had it suggested by a couple of people that I perhaps should write a non-fiction. So I'm, again, I'm toying that idea. I'm toying with that idea. Um, a couple of all, uh, one, a couple of decent authors have said, you've got some good stories here, you should do something with these. So I'm sort of toying with that. So maybe I might have a go at that as well. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Neil Lancaster, who actually came down to the flat. Came down to the flat, had a cup of tea, uh, went to go and see his agent on his way down, and also uh, got locked in my backyard where the bins are. So thank you so much uh, to Neil for taking the time to come all the way down here to tell me all about the way that he writes. I really appreciate it. You can learn loads more about his books over on the website. It is writersroutine.com. A few things that you can keep busy with while you're stuck at home. Uh, if you can, please do support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Uh, if you would like to help us out in other ways, by all means, just leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you're not on that, just tell someone that you know, maybe someone that's in a writer's group with you. Tell them, uh, use your own actual words to spread the word uh, and let me know how you're finding it as well. You can just get in touch over on the contact page at writersroutine.com and give us a follow as well. Uh, on Twitter, we are at writerspod. Now, next week, we're back with Nicola Gill talking all about her debut Bear, bear with me on this, by the way. It's very cringy. The title. Uh, it's, it's very good. The the, the 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 genre. The the names that they call genres are ridiculous. I think. Um, but she's written female fiction. Uh, she's not happy with that too either. I think that's just that's just on the blood anyway uh we're talking to nicola gill all about her brand new book it's called the neighbors uh, female fiction yeah. it's for everyone though don't worry you can hear all about it next week on writer's routine hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.